Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. And we are opening up once again with um, some sounds of Julian Catasti, who is uh, my neighbor here on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and is a master of the Bandora, which is the Ukrainian lute. And we are uh, opening with his music once again because uh, we're going to be discussing Ukraine as well as some other things tonight, but we're going to start out the conversation discussing Ukraine and uh, quite uh, particularly discussing the Crimean Peninsula. And contrary to some stuff that you may have read on RT or Sputnik, the Crimean Peninsula remains a part of Ukraine. Under international law, it remains a part of Ukraine. Its annexation by Russia in 2014 was illegal and has no legitimacy. Just to make sure that's clear. And the developments there in the illegally annexed Crimean Peninsula continue to um, get shamefully little coverage in the world media, uh, particularly the situation of the Crimean Tartars, the Tartar people who are the, uh, you could say, the indigenous people of the Crimean Peninsula, a Turkic and Muslim people who have um, had their um, territorial autonomy illegally abrogated by the Russian occupation since the annexation of the peninsula. And many of their leaders have been arrested on various um, dubious charges. The latest was a, uh, a young man by the name of Fevzi Sahanzi, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, who was um, just sentenced this past week to more than 10 years in prison by the illegitimate Russian authorities 
in the Crimean Peninsula for his supposed involvement in a, um, a sort of a paramilitary militia, which has been enforcing a blockade which has been launched on the Ukrainian side of the border, uh, known as the, um, the Norman Chelabichihan Battalion, which is named for um, the martyred president of the short-lived independent Crimean Republic of 1918, himself a totter, before becoming the president of the brief Crimean Republic. He was the, the mufti of Crimea, and he was executed by the Bolsheviks after their seizure of the peninsula. The evidence against Fevzi Sahanzi seems extremely sketchy, according to the accounts which I read from uh, the website Human Rights in Ukraine, the main source for the blog post that I wrote, which is on my website, countervortex.org. He was convicted on the basis of um, video evidence that only showed him from behind. So, uh, <clears throat> sounds a little bit sketchy. And uh, we should say that there's been a lot of talk on Russian propaganda websites that the Norman Chelebichihan Battalion is, you know, made up of Islamist radicals and, um, and it's separatist and so on. Uh, if you actually look at their own demands, they uh, began participating in the blockade of the Crimean Peninsula in response to um, the detention of the uh, Crimean Tartar leaders and um, abrogation of their territorial autonomy and even of their elementary rights to freedom of speech and assembly on the Russian annexed peninsula. And they do not even appear to be calling for Crimean independence or for um, reunion with Ukraine, but merely for the restoration of um, the Tartars' territorial autonomy, which again was abrogated by the Russians when they took over. Uh, these are all demands which I thoroughly support. And I certainly say freedom for Fevzi Sahanzi. I will acknowledge that there are um, certain strange bedfellows, certain contradictions or complications in this whole situation. And strange bedfellows is very much going to be the theme of my rant tonight. One of them is, most glaring one, is that this, um, this blockade of the Crimean Peninsula, which has been launched from, uh, from the Ukrainian side of the border, that is to say from uh, Ukraine proper, so to speak, has been led by militants from the extreme ultra-right fascistic Ukrainian nationalist group, Right Sector. I mean, Right Sector, you would think, is not particularly uh, enamored of the ultimate Crimean Tartar demands of, you know, their own self-governing majlis or parliament and so on in their own territory. Similarly, the Norman Chelebichihan Battalion is named after the leader of an independent Crimea back in 1918. Presumably, they are not interested in Ukrainian nationalism. They're interested in self-determination for the Tartar people. So this would appear to be an alliance of convenience between the Crimean Tartars and right sector. And that ultimately, they have inimical aims, but they happen to be united by their mutual antagonism for the Russian occupation of the Crimean Peninsula. And, you know, Russian state media, RT and Sputnik and so on, and, uh, you know, the Kremlin generally have got a lot of propaganda mileage 
out of the fact that, uh, you know, you have these ugly extremist elements like right sector coming to the fore in Ukraine. And uh, Putin has been very much sort of playing to World War II nostalgia and portraying, uh, you know, the Ukrainians as uh, neo-fascists and Nazi nostalgists and so on. And really, you know, unfortunately, an awful lot of this talk has been uh, just sort of um, unthinkingly parroted by a lot of leftists in the West now in really a very condescending and I would even say almost racist kind of way where it's almost as if, you know, Ukrainian and, and, and fascist have become synonymous. Certainly, I absolutely oppose right sector and I'm thoroughly alarmed at the way such fascistic elements are coming to the fore in Ukraine. But the problem with a lot of uh, so-called leftist thinking about Ukraine in the West is that it's only looking at one side and it's not looking at the extreme ultra-nationalist reactionary politics, which also prevail on the Russian side. And with Putin pursuing his own agenda of great Russian nationalism, military aggression, and it's all, you know, domestic, anti-woman, anti-gay, ultra-nationalist agenda at home, you know, his sort of um, cynically playing to uh, World War II nostalgia to try to hoodwink progressives in the West and his propaganda against Ukraine, this is an example of what I call the paradoxical fascist pseudo-anti-fascism. And, uh, you know, this is very interesting. There's been a big crackdown on anarchists in Russia recently, with several of them arrested on what seem to be bogus terrorism charges. And now there seems to be a similar crackdown or, you know, anarchist scare going on in Ukraine. (laughs) These two, you know, Russia and and Ukraine, these two societies, which are supposed to be uh, so opposed to each other, seem to mirror each other in too many ways. Um, And particularly some... uh, Some anarchist kids in Ukraine are suspected or supposedly suspected of having carried out a um, an attack, a physical attack on one of the leaders of right sector, a guy by the name of Dmitry Ivachenko. And uh, several homes have been raided and so on by the Ukrainian security services, SBU, which is the um, sort of Ukrainian successor organization to the KGB much as the, um, the Russian FSB is the Russian successor organization to the old KGB. So things are certainly getting polarized in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, I would like very much to um, establish contact with these Ukrainian anarchists and um, express my solidarity with them, for starters, and have an exchange of views with them, because I certainly hope and trust, I will add, that they have, uh, you know, not been falling for this, um, you know, Russian propaganda, which would vilify the Maidan revolution as a fascist coup, which it was certainly not. And uh, I hope that even in opposing right sector, that they also support the struggle of the Crimean Tartars and understand the pressures that have lured the Crimean Tartars or some of them, into an alliance with right sector. Those, those of them which are participating in the Norman Chelebichihan Battalion. So, strange bedfellows over there in Ukraine and Crimea. There's also some strange bedfellows happening right here in our own hemisphere. 
Let's talk about Venezuela. I suppose it's inevitable. Now, presumably, assuming that, uh, you know, my listeners are mostly fellow leftists, I don't have to make the case against Juan Guaido, this pretender to the presidency who um, is attempting to seize power there now, the leader of the opposition, largely right-wing opposition, certainly right-wing-led opposition. Let's leave it at that. Um, Juan Guaido is being backed by, you know, open fascists such as Donald Trump, and I do consider him a fascist, and uh, Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil, another open fascist. Some people have pointed out in his defense that Juan Guaido's Valentud Popular Party calls itself popular will, calls itself democratic socialist, and is actually a member of the Socialist International. I'm really not very... Um, impressed by this. The Socialist International also includes the French Socialist Party, which is not particularly socialist, as we're well aware. The um, Israeli Labor Party, which is certainly more Zionist than it is socialist. And perhaps most tellingly of all, the Peruvian Opera Party, whose president, Alan Garcia, about 10 years ago, actually got Peru into the free trade agreement with the United States and attempted to drown in blood the indigenous and campesino opposition to it. So um, I think it's pretty clear that Juan Guaido's politics are actually pretty neoliberal, as they say, and that if he were to succeed in taking power, that it would mean a rapid reversal of some of the actual advances of the so-called Bolivarian Revolution over the past um, 12 years, whatever it's been, since Hugo Chavez first came to power. All of that said, what's happening in Venezuela could, you know, I think legitimately be considered an attempted coup. But the way the word coup is being bandied about, kind of indiscriminately making, you know, sort of this uncritical analogy to, you know, Chile in 1973, is a little bit disingenuous, okay? Venezuela is definitely in extremely deep crisis. And there is clearly a lot of popular discontent, not merely, you know, bourgeois and oligarchical discontent, but widespread popular discontent and unhappiness with the regime of Nicolas Maduro, which quite genuinely has been corrupt, repressive, and undemocratic. And certainly, you know... In addition to everybody talks about the sanctions as, you know, being responsible for the crisis in Venezuela. And it has to be pointed out that it is only now that finally the U.S. is getting around to imposing the most critical sanctions on Venezuela, which are oil sanctions. That hasn't been the case up till now. So it hasn't been uh, not remotely analogous to, uh, you know, the kind of sweeping embargo that was placed on, on revolutionary Nicaragua in the 1980s. And Nicaragua, I will also point out, is a uh, you know, much smaller and poorer and U.S.-dependent country than Venezuela, which has got a great deal of oil wealth. And certainly they've been turning to Russia and China to sell their oil as um, it's become more difficult for them to deal with the United States. 
But until just now, when oil sanctions have finally been imposed, you know, the sanctions against Venezuela have been very targeted. They've been targeted against particular individuals in the regime. It hasn't been, you know, a general embargo such as was placed on Nicaragua in the 1980s. So um, pointing to um, the sanctions as responsible for the crisis there, I think, is somewhat disingenuous. I mean, they've contributed, but they are certainly not the predominant factor. A predominant factor is um, that oil prices have been depressed for the past several years now, the same years which have coincided with the dramatic worsening of the economic situation in Venezuela. And uh, for all of the uh, you know talk about the so-called Bolivarian Revolution, the regime has failed to radically redistribute land to the peasants to achieve food self-sufficiency or to diversify the economy. And it's basically remained a rentier state, so to speak, even if it's, uh, you know, new clients are now Russia and China increasingly, as opposed to the United States. It's still overwhelmingly based on selling off the oil wealth to the highest foreign bidder and using the proceeds to fund social programs. But to fund social programs, uh, you know, under the control of, you know, the uh, apparatus of the ruling party and doing so in very clientelist manner and trying to, you know, build support for the political machine that way. It really has, unfortunately, I mean, I hate to say it, but it really has been concomitant with um, uh, the establishment of a one-party state and undermining the powers of the, um, of the National Assembly, which is controlled by the opposition. And, you know, the fact that we don't like the opposition and don't share the politics of the opposition doesn't make that any the less true, okay? <laughs> so, um, we have to look pretty squarely at what's going on. And uh, now let's, you know, turn to the whole question of, once again, strange bedfellows, because, you know, Nicolas Maduro has got plenty of his own. You know, I pointed out, even back in the, um, the days of Hugo Chavez, who was certainly, you know, far more of a charismatic leader and a man of a certain political genius than Maduro, who is a comparative mediocrity. I pointed out, even under Chavez, that for all of the uh, you know, progressive content to his so-called Bolivarian revolution, the fact that he was so chummy with foreign reactionary dictators, including Bashar Assad of Syria, and standing by Assad even as his regime began to escalate to genocide after the Syrian revolution broke out in 2011, and others, the rulers of Iran, Alexander Lukashenko, of Belarus, who was for many years called Europe's last dictator, although I would argue that now Europe has two dictators, Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus and Vladimir Putin of Russia, and probably Viktor Orban of Hungary is not far behind in terms of consolidating dictatorships. You know, uh, the Chavez coziness with these reactionary dictators kind of made you wonder about his actual commitment to democracy, even in Venezuela. You know, I mean, I'm sorry to say it. And that's only gotten worse under Maduro, who has gotten even cozier with some of these dictators and has also uh, moved Venezuela in a more undemocratic direction. A couple of years back, even in the midst of the genocide that Bashar Assad has been unleashing against the Syrian people in response to the, uh, the revolutionary movement there, Nicolas Maduro invited him to the presidential palace in Caracas and honored him with a replica 
of the sword of Simon Bolivar. Utterly repugnant. And uh, to make it all even more surreal is that Maduro is also all buddy-buddy with the supposed archenemy of Bashar Assad, the uh, Turkish up-and-coming dictator, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's been rapidly consolidating a dictatorship in Turkey since the attempted coup there two years ago, and um, is the mass murderer of the rebel Kurds, both within Turkish territory and Ultimately, you know, certainly it's clear that he has designs on, uh, on Rojava, on the, uh, on the Kurdish autonomous zone in northern Syria as well. Again, pretty strange bedfellows there, you know? I mean, um, all of us lefties are supposed to be, you know, rooting for the revolutionary Kurds in Turkey and Syria. And we're also supposed to be rooting for Nicolas Maduro, who's like cozying up with the fascist mass murderer of the Kurds, aggressive Tayyip Erdogan. I don't know, you know? And uh, in fact, um, Erdogan was one of the few world leaders who has come out vocally and publicly in support of Maduro since um, Guaido has been, uh, you know, attempting his coup. One of the few who actually called Maduro last week to express his support for him. Now, to make it all even stranger, here is one that you may have missed. It has been reported by Reuters and other sources that Russian mercenaries have been sent to Venezuela to serve as a kind of Praetorian guard for Maduro for fears that some elements of his own inner circle in the military may not be loyal and may be plotting against him. These mercenaries were recruited by a, um, an organization, a so-called PMC, private military company, called the Wagner Group, or perhaps they pronounce it the German way, the Wagner Group. Not sure. It's actually Russian, despite its German name. And uh, the Wagner Group has apparently been recruiting from the Cossacks, you know, the old czarist paramilitary organization, which has been resurgent in Russia in recent years. Uh, There's uh, particularly um, a group called the uh, Kovrino Cossacks, who um, are alleged to have provided mercenaries for the Wagner Group both to fight on behalf of Bashar Assad in Syria and now to serve as a kind of uh, Praetorian guard for uh, Maduro in Venezuela. And if the media accounts are to be believed, this detachment of Cossacks who were sent to uh, to Venezuela to serve as uh, Maduro's private guard actually touched down in Havana. They took a chartered flight from Moscow to Havana And then we're put on a a commercial flight from Havana to Caracas. Now, how bizarre is this? That communist Cuba is allowing the transit of Cossacks through its territory. The Cossacks, of course, having been allied with the white Russians, that is to say, you know, the the counter-revolutionary, reactionary czarist elements in the civil war that followed the Russian Revolution of 1917, How bizarre is this? And I'll point out, since this is the second reference to this era, that the Crimean Tartars at this time, the immediate aftermath of the Russian Revolution, the collapse of the Tsarist state, they did not want a restoration of the old order. And certainly, you know, the Tsars had been oppressing the Tartars 
just as much as the Bolsheviks later would. <laughs> they merely, you know, grabbed the opportunity, uh, you know, of the, the collapse of the old state to try to, uh, you know, the old Russian Empire to try to, um, you know, establish their own independence and succeeded in doing so for a year before the territory was reconquered by the Russians, this time the Bolshevik Russians. So they were not trying to restore the old order the way the Cossacks were. The Cossacks were, you know, sort of the, 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 the paramilitary force that did the dirty work of, uh, you know, slaughtering Jews and, and, and conquering uh, people like the Tartars and conquering, uh, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the Turkic hordes of Central Asia for the greater glory of the Tsars. Uh, certainly for um, for the Jews of Eastern Europe and for the Turkic peoples of Central Asia, you know, the Cossacks are, you know, the rough equivalent of the, what, what the Ku Klux Klan stands for here in, uh, you know, North American politics and history. So uh, rather an irony, I would say, that, uh, you know, Nicolas Maduro, who all of us lefties are supposed to be rooting for, has apparently got, you know, a Praetorian guard of Russian Cossacks and that, you know, the, um, the the Cuban communists allowed Russian Cossacks to pass through their territory on the way to Venezuela. Very, very strange. All right. So, uh, you know, nobody wants to look at all of this because it's very inconvenient to, um, you know, the sort of polarized, dualistic view of the situation in Venezuela. But, uh, you know, there's sort of... Um, there's creepy stuff on both sides here. And contrary to, you know, this, this rigidly dualistic media portrayal, which um, infects both the mainstream media as well as, you know, the so-called alternative media or the left media, whatever you want to call it, there actually are elements in Venezuela which are not either with Guaido or Maduro. When uh, Guaido last month was preparing to um, announce his, you know, self-inauguration as president, there was a group called the Citizen Platform in Defense of the Constitution, the PCDC by its um, Spanish acronym, which held a press conference on January 17th to say no to the parallel state of Juan Guaido being imposed by the United States, the European Union, and the Lima Group, which is the regional bloc led by Peru, which is um, attempting to um, affect regime change in Venezuela, but also registering their rejection of the, quote, sellout and unconstitutional regime of Nicolas Maduro. And it's very interesting that they use the term sellout, or um, in the original Spanish it was entreguista, which, uh, as near as I can figure out, means, you know, um, sellout or um, submissive or, tre- or treasonous. And the implication here is not that Venezuela under Maduro is too socialist, but precisely the opposite, that it is not socialist enough, that it's continuing to sell off the oil resources to foreign companies, even if now they're Russian and Chinese rather than American that it's continuing to uh, fail to have a thoroughgoing agrarian reform and redistributing the land to the campesinos, and that it is failing to sufficiently recognize the territorial autonomy of indigenous peoples and failing to give a meaningful role in running the country to the uh, worker and campesino masses. And they are, um, I have to point out here that this... um, Citizen Platform in Defense of the Constitution 
It's not a body of the right. It is a body of the left. It is to the left of Nicolas Maduro. It is opposing him from the left. And it is made up of longtime social leaders of the left, including former cabinet ministers under Hugo Chavez, who now feel that, uh, you know, Maduro has sort of dropped the ball, so to speak, and betrayed the truly positive elements of the uh, of the Bolivarian Revolution. In addition to, you know, to these sort of um, critical Chavistas, as they call themselves, Chavistas who have become critics of the Nicolas Maduro government, uh, in addition to that, you've also have followers of the Marea Socialista, or the Socialist Tide, which appears to be a, um, a Trotskyist formation. Now, I'm not particularly a Trotskyist. I'm more of an anarchist. But um, I join with them, and I note that, you know, the, uh, the, the PCDC is, does not seem to be an entity of the Marea Socialista, but um, a coalition which includes followers of the Marea Socialista, as well as other elements, including people from the uh, critical Chavismo tendency. But I join with them in saying, ni Guaido, ni Trump, ni Maduro. And what they are actually calling for is a, um, and they say that there are actually, you know, mechanisms in the, uh, the Venezuelan constitution for this. They are calling for a popular referendum to, quote, renovate all of the public powers in the country. They want an emergency referendum to be held to choose new leadership at every level of power, it appears. So um, I'd like to find out more. You know, I've just been able to, there's been very little information about this online. The uh, website Aporea has been um, extremely uh, useful. Seems to be a website of... uh, Venezuelan civil society, which is um, critical, again, of both um, Maduro and of Guaido. A-P-O-R-R-E-A, aporea.org. But I, you know, I certainly wish that uh, that progressives and lefties up here in Gringolandia would be heeding these voices a little bit more, at least acknowledging their existence and grappling with what they have to say. I also want to talk about a particular incident which happened um, two months ago now in December in uh, the remote Orinoco rainforest of the Guayana region of Venezuela, where the Pemon indigenous people have been mobilizing to protect their territory from uh, being inundated by mining interests. And it's interesting, the, uh, the actual inundation, which now appears to be underway, has largely been outlaw gold miners. This is a very common tendency throughout the, um, the, the rainforest of South America, people who have been, you know, displaced from the economy have been going into the rainforest and establishing uh, dredge mining on the, um, on, on, the, on the rivers, both of the Amazon and Orinoco basins. But it's uh, most advanced in Venezuela because of the you know, profundity of the economic crisis in Venezuela. There's more illegal mining going on in the Venezuelan Orinoco than... Um, anywhere else in, you know, Brazil, Peru, and it's very serious problems in those countries as well. But, uh, you know, taking a grave ecological toll, you know, it's virtually unregulated. I mean, it's, it's outlaw mining, so it's, it's, it's virtually unregulated. And, uh, rivers are being dredged without any kind of um, ecological controls, being contaminated with mercury, it, you know, terrible problems with uh, erosion, deforestation, etc. I've actually witnessed some of this in Peru, but it's apparently much worse in Venezuela. 
And in addition, the government itself has launched what they're calling the um, Orinoco Mineral Arc Project, where once they get the, the region under control and clear out the illegal miners, they want to bring in legal miners, actually, you know, bring in big, uh, you know, corporate mining interests and, um, and start uh, extracting money from the, the mineral sector more massively, just as they have with oil over the, um, the past generations. So the Pemon, indigenous people of the, of the Guayana region, have been demanding the expulsion of the illegal miners from their territory, but they are also saying no to the government's plan under the Orinoco Mineral Arc program to bring in, you know, big corporate mega mining as well. The details of what actually happened are still rather unclear, but on December 8th, there was a confrontation at a place called Campo Carao, an outpost within the Canaima National Park in the, um, in the Guayana region, where a uh, Pemon leader by the name of Charlie Peñaloza Rivas was killed by elite military counterintelligence troops. And two other um, Pemon warriors were, um, were injured in the confrontation. Amnesty International carried out their own investigation and found that the troops opened fire without any justification, quote, unquote. Exactly what sparked the confrontation is still unclear, but it was followed by um, a little uprising, actually, within Pemon territory, where members of the Pemon Territorial Guard um, took five hostages at um, Campo Carral, including members of the... uh, employees of the, the government electricity monopoly, Corpolec, and the Pemon Territorial Guard and their um, environmentalist allies in the region, speaking in the name of the uh, Venezuelan Political Ecology Observatory, issued a statement calling on um, the government to recognize the right under the indigenous autonomy provisions of the Venezuelan constitution of the um, Pemon people to have territorial control of the area. So again, I'd like to have a much clearer picture of what's going on out in the Guayana region of the Orinoco rainforest in the remote southeast of Venezuela. And all of this points to, you know, the inherent contradiction in the, um, you know, so-called Bolivarian Revolution, which has always had as its fundamental strategy winning popular support through a clientelist distribution of the proceeds of resource extraction. And for all of the government's titling of indigenous lands and so on, and attempting to, you know, win support from the peasantry and the indigenous peoples, ultimately, there is a contradiction here because the, the, the government's political program has been based from the very beginning on massive resource extraction and selling it off to foreign private interests. And it doesn't make any difference if, you know, now those interests are Russian and Chinese and the Chinese ones actually, uh, you know, most of them very often are so-called SOEs, state-owned enterprises. Ultimately, that really does not make any difference that the buyers are, uh, you know, um, Putin-linked oil companies like Rosneft or um, Chinese state-owned enterprises, as opposed to, uh, you know, ExxonMobil, which left the country some 10 years ago because they couldn't come to terms with the government. It ultimately doesn't make any difference. It certainly doesn't make any difference to the Paymon. 
and the other indigenous peoples whose territory is going to be plundered either way. So, you know, this is an inherent contradiction of the so-called Bolivarian Revolution, and there is nothing to be gained from overlooking it in the name of anti-imperialism. On the other hand, I recognize that the, you know, condition of Venezuela's indigenous peoples and workers and peasants clearly stands to worsen, certainly not improve, if an openly neoliberal reactionary regime were to take power. So uh, I'm interested in hearing more neither-nor voices from Venezuela. I think that it is urgently demanded that we break out of the polarized either-or paradigm, which everybody, left, right, and center, seems to be accepting and looking for more of those um, neither-nor voices. I stand with the citizen platform in defense of the Constitution, at least in as much as I would like to give them more of a voice and hear more of what they have to say. And I certainly stand with the Paymon and their struggle to defend their territory, regardless of who is in power in Caracas. And once again, I say, ni Guaido, ni Trump, ni Maduro. None of the above. Thank you very much. Returning once again to Crimea, I support the Crimean Tartars. If there's any Crimean Tartars who are listening to this, I want to say I absolutely support your struggle for human rights, regional autonomy, and self-determination against Vladimir Putin and his illegal annexation of your territory and abrogation of your autonomy. At the same time, I want to warn you. I probably don't have to warn you, but I'm going to say it anyway. Don't trust right sector. They are not going to be trustworthy allies in the long term. Ultimately, your interests are inimical. They are Ukrainian ultranationalists and are ultimately, we can assume, no more interested in Tartar autonomy than is Vladimir Putin, whose politics they paradoxically mirror. And to the Ukrainian anarchists who are coming under attack now for their opposition to right sector, I extend my solidarity to you guys too, and I will be blogging about um, the raids which you have suffered tonight on my website, countervortex.org. And I'd like to hear from you guys, too. I'd especially like to hear your um, perspectives on what's happening in Crimea and what the prospects are for the Ukrainian anarchists who oppose right sector to actually build some bonds of solidarity with the Crimean Tartars. And uh, to uh, my fellow U.S. anarchists and progressives generally here in New York and the United States, you know, I'm sorry. I am not going to rally uncritically around the corrupt, repressive, and undemocratic regime of Nicolas Maduro. And I insist that it is possible to oppose Maduro and at the same time oppose Guaido, oppose Trump, and say, yeah, U.S. imperialism hands off Venezuela. And also Russian imperialism and Chinese imperialism hands off Venezuela. I will add... So uh, I would just urge you to um, check out uh, the material online, both at countervortex.org and aporea.org, about the Morea Socialista and the citizen platform in defense of the Constitution, and the Paymon. And certainly, unequivocally, we should be supporting the struggle of the Paymon, regardless of who is in power 
in Caracas. So that's my story. I'm sticking to it. I stand with the Crimean Tartars. I stand with the Ukrainian anarchists. I stand with the Paimon of the Orinoco Basin. I stand with the Marea Socialista and the Citizen Platform for the Defense of the Constitution. I say, ni Guaido, ni Trump, ni Maduro. And while I'm at it, ni right sector, ni Putin. Please be in touch and let me know what you think about any of this. Check out my website, countervortex.org, where everything that I've been ranting about tonight is all online and blogged and documented and hyperlinked and the whole works. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online, countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.